Welcome to the Divine Misfits Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Press, an ex-evangelical, pansexual, deconstructed religious misfit. We will be having real conversations with incredible humans about their religious hurts and how we have healed and continue to heal from our experiences. I am so thankful to be having these conversations with you. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast, you guys. Today we have Luell Fantroy, or some of you guys may know him, Cult Spirit. Luell is a cult survivor, a husband of 12 years, a father of five boys, and a creative that is using his talents and his voice to empower and rehumanize humanity. Luell, welcome on. What's up? I like that intro. That's fire. I am so excited <laughs> for this. Holy crap. <laughs> I feel like your Instagram page has blown up and then, oh, didn't even mention you're also hosting two podcasts now. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have just like blown up yeah. in the last few months. <laughs> I know. It's just c- content overload. Um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. Now, um, yeah, two. Um, yeah, I guess I think got two podcasts, right? I think, <laughs> I think so, right? <laughs> yeah, my wife and I. Oh, uh-huh. no, no, no. And I have archives of po- podcasts so that I filmed with my brother, the Health yes. Human Podcast. I'm probably going to have another podcast as well, though. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So you're giving us all the content. <laughs> yes. We this love is, it. Th- this, is wh- this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do uh, creative content, creative. So tell us a little bit about your experience. We're going to be touching on a lot with this podcast. So I kind of want to start from the beginning, I guess. Tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in a cult and then mm-hmm. whenever you were in foster care after that, like what did up until I guess what 10 and a half look like for yeah. you? Okay. No, that's fine. Um, yeah, like I didn't even really acknowledge it as a cult until years later. Mm. Um, even when I explained it uh, years later to um, Becca, um, my partner, my wife, and uh, I explained, I didn't call it a straight up cult, even when I explained it. And I was like, 24 25 at that time and I went years without calling it that though I knew the news did the media did uh the you know local news to the national news called it that Mm -hmm. but we were told no that's just the media you know what I mean you know so I kind of give you know that that context and when you said that because I'm recently calling it a cult you know in the last I think seven years (laughs) or 10 years no 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 yeah, like I don't know. I can't, I don't remember the time frame. But all that to say is that yeah, I didn't grow up in a normal household. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with, you know, um, you know, a cat and a dog and you know, mom and a dad just in a home, in a normal home. I actually was born in, in 1984, Los Angeles, California, Watts, um, into a bakery that was converted into living conditions with multiple families living in there. So that's what I was born into. And that was a cult. And um, that was um, from a denomination called Church of God in Christ. And um, yeah, it's like a Pentecostal, very legalistic Pentecostal Mm -hmm. uh, denomination. Um, The cult leader was a uh, pastor's son. So um, young pastor's son who yeah, was in, in, in South Central LA as well, but he did sports. He was a pastor's son. And also he went and played college. So he went outside the neighborhood, okay. which most people in the neighborhood, inside the ghettos, inside the hood, don't have that much exposure outside mm-hmm. of that. Um, but he had exposure, went off to college, read some books, excuse the loud car outside. <laughs> 
over here. People trying to just, you know, flexing their insecurity. Yeah. I don't know. You feel me? I don't know what's going on. Um, but anyway, so yeah, he had exposure, had, you know, so he read books that people in the hood don't read. So he came back with charismatic, came back as a pastor's son. But then he didn't like how church was doing. So he wanted to create his own little segment. And he kind of branched off from, uh, it, called, it was called Watts Christian Center, the church. And he kind of started his own movement, a whole bunch of young people, including my parents. My, my, dad, my mom was 15, just young. It started off wow. in a back house of just like not nothing weird and exclusive. Like it didn't start off as a cult, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it was just, you know, charismatic speaking in tongues, Christian foundation, Jesus is Lord type, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, start off like that. My, my parents are 16, 17. It was around, I think the Jesus movement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, Bible studies and like, you know, stuff like that. And uh, my dad liked my mom. You know what I mean? So my dad was like, cool, I'm about to follow this, this girl to Bible study. Mm-hmm. So my dad came and he like, oh, I like this too. And I like this woman. And before my dad was like 18, my mom was what, 15, 16. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, he was a senior. She was like a sophomore or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they heard this charismatic dude preaching the gospel and all this type of stuff and things, his vision, what he wants to do. And they, they came and they got caught up into it. And before you know it, it got exclusive, weird. My brother, my sister was born. My brothers was born. Then I'm the youngest out of five. I was born inside this cult when it was already running inside this bakery for about maybe eight years in, maybe longer. I'm not sure. Um, I still um, messed up with the time frame. Mm-hmm. So I was born into that. I was, th- that's what I was born into what was your experience like when you kind of became cognizant like oh this is different than maybe what other people are experiencing yeah uh, yeah that was that wasn't until later okay and um actually thank you for saying that because i'm Mm -hmm. now i know where to go from here uh so yeah my uh my, my like yeah so that was i was born in that cult and what happened was a uh an event that happened in the summer of 1988 when the building that I'll say we were born in, um, uh, this bakery converted into living conditions, what happened was um, uh, some inspectors came and said, this is not living conditions. You guys need to get it, this up to code. And so they, what did they wanted to do is remodel the building to make it up to legal conditions mm-hmm. and living conditions. So what they did, uh, they from Los Angeles, California, they sent 53 kids with three adults into, to Portland, Oregon or Sandy, Oregon. Wow. Yes. My parents stayed behind. All the parents stayed behind, except for a couple. It was two adults that was watching 53 kids into on property that we owned in Sandy, Oregon, in a small house that was three bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah. They had, yeah. So, so it was wild. So they, for the, it was, we were supposed to stay up there for the summer. In this cult, it was a lot of mixed with Bible memorization. My brother was like seven years old and he, before he even knew how to read, he memorized the whole book of Romans. Okay. This is the type of cult. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And my early years of remembering is seeing these little pamphlets, laminated pamphlets of a whole book with text on it, end up coming to find out that's the book of Romans that every adult, everybody in this cult is memorizing the book of Romans. Wow. Yeah, because they wanted to become spiritual giants 
they mix spirituality mixed with athleticism because the vision of the cult leader was to take troubled young teens out of the hood and give them opportunity to um, play sports and learn discipline through sports and faith. That was the vision. A lot of people bought into it. Celebrities even bought into it in the LA area. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was a great vision, like a lot of like great ideas and great cults. Mm -hmm. But it was toxic in its nature because one head leader mm -hmm. would, you know, you know, how co-leaders are very narcissistic yep. and all that type of stuff. Um, so it, that's my early years of remembering that. That being yeah. said, fast forward back to um, 53 kids going into Sandy, Oregon. Sandy, Oregon, out of all the places from South Central L.A. to Sandy, Oregon, yeah. is property that um, property that the cult own. And it was an area where they wanted kind of to create a compound there as well, almost like another campus if it was mm -hmm. a, like modern day church. Um, but they owned that property for a couple of years. But the summer before uh, the media in, in, uh, caught wind of this group that's coming in Sandy, Oregon, setting up shop with a whole bunch of kids picking berries. And yeah, because yeah. that's what we was doing. We was wow. like th this, this, this cult was actually the largest child slavery labor uh, case in, in Oregon. I mean, in a nation, I, I, that's, you know, I heard. It's called wow. Ecclesia Athletic Association, if you want to Google it. Yeah. There's a lot of articles on it. Um, so, yeah. So, event that took place was in Sandy, Oregon. So, they sent up, the cult leader sent up a lady um, to watch over us, that she normally watch over the kids, because this, you know, this cult had, uh, a this community had, um, a daycare for the kids and stuff like that so the parents was off busy but the, the um, you know the the caretaker that watched the kids will pretty much raise us you know yeah. watch us and it was a couple different adults but this person was always nice but this person was, was dealing with manipulation this person um, was dealing with a lot of mind games coming to find out and she, and before she even watched us and that the cult leader sent this leader up to watch us that usually watch the kids anyway. She actually uh, had a mental breakdown and went to a psych ward for a little bit. Mm. Then she got out. Then the cult leader decided, hey, she needs something to do or she will snap again. So let's watch 50 something kids in a different state, 971 miles away from the original place where they live and abide and wow. specifically from their parents. Yeah. So wow. in that case, in that house, it was Sandy, Oregon. We, the ki we had to be silent because we didn't want to know. They didn't want to know people. First of all, they didn't want, they didn't want to know that kids, 53 kids is in a three bedroom house watched by three adults. Okay. Yeah. That being said, they separated the older adults from the younger adults. I was one of the, young, I mean, not the younger, I'm getting this all mixed up. The they kids, separate the yeah. kids, the younger kids from the older kids. Yeah. And um, that's my first memory is in that house of life in that house and wow. being, I was four and a half years old, but I was a four and a half years old. That was, I was a four-year-old that was very aware. Um, I was very observant. I was like, I feel like I was very just aware. I, mm -hmm. I like at, at a young age, I remember, but that's the first memory I have what life was. That's the first introduction to life was that mm -hmm. house in Sandy. And a lot of abuse was going on in the house. She was like whipping every kid with extension cords and she was just leaving scars on their back and I can go on the details and that all that to say is um, we was there in the summer of 1988. Um, I think it was, I think it's 80. No, it might be, it might be 88 or 89. I'm getting it mixed up. Yeah. 
but one of the kids were um was resistant against this abuse was resistance against silent drills we went on silent drills meaning we couldn't talk for days we couldn't talk to one another um we had to be silent and if anybody say anything uh they're gonna get lit up they're gonna get hurt real bad you know yeah. abuse with extension cords that being said um wow. this is definitely trigger warning and i'm <laughs> i did not give that warning but uh yeah. i didn't mean to go in too much detail but that being said an event that took place where the, the girl that was resistant they were trying to calm her they was trying to discipline her and she was like no i'm not taking it and until they just one night they took it over the top and two people came down to help out from la and those two males that came and try to help out the situation and um, they end up partaking in the abuse and they end up trying to discipline this rebellious child, supposedly um, just a, just a young nine year old that's just trying to run, trying to get away from this, this toxic, abusive, yeah. messed up environment. So what they went overboard and they lined up all the kids inside of a garage and watch this beautiful young girl get beat to death. Yes. Then they panicked. They realized they made a mistake. They tried to rush her to the hospital or to the local fireplace. Then hours later, FBI knocking down our door. Mm. And to me, to this day, as a young kid, four and a half years old, never been away from parents for months in this toxic, oppressive environment where kids, I'm hearing them screaming, hearing them getting beat by extension cords and all that type of stuff, mm. not being touched not being held, not being comfort, but sleeping on the floor yeah. um, and not getting fed regular meals and the FBI knocking down a door. And I never forget the feeling of being held by a police officer <sighs> and the feeling of relaxing my arms. And I remember it was, it was nighttime. I see they had to have city buses come pick us up because of mm -hmm. so many kids. Wow. And they, and I remember the sirens I mean, not the sirens, but the flashing of the lights, of police lights. And I was so tired, but I felt so loved. I felt mm -hmm. so, I felt rescued. I felt, I felt safe. I felt yeah. amazing. I never forget that feeling. And they put us into a facility where it's kind of like a group home, trying to figure out how we're going to get these kids um, into homes and foster cares. They contacted the parents. They contacted the group in LA because let me tell you something. The parents in the group in LA was being told something different that was mm. happening in Oregon. They okay. were sending up food. They were sending up all these resources to us, but it wasn't getting to us because at the time, the, the person in charge was just lost it and just like took the frustration that she was getting from the group in front of the situation and her wow. trauma that she came into the cult and took it out mm -hmm. on the kids. And um, this was this type of behavior wasn't regular in the cult. It just happened, you know, at that time. But it but it was a lot of toxic behavior that led up to that. Yeah. So so, so yeah, that's in foster. Then they took wow. they so they took us away in city buses, put us in a group home, and I didn't really know who my brother and my sister was. Mm -hmm. We were all just kind of one family. Mm -hmm. We were you know 50, 50 plus kids, multiple families. We were all one family. So I didn't know. It wasn't about blood. It was like, this is my community. This is what I know. I don't know anything mm -hmm. else. So the, the painful part is when they separate us from each other, you know, yeah. that was very painful. Then I, they split up the families, um, the youngest out of five, like I said, so they split us up into multiple different foster homes 
and I was with my oldest brother and my two middle brothers was together and my sister was mm-hmm. with the other girls of the group and my parents they told my parents hey come get your kids it's okay you can come get them they came up and they say you're not getting your kids until you renounce the group because this group is harmful then my parents scared they they might um, lose their soul their salvation so they were like okay I'm gonna try to get my kids by staying in the group but still try to get our kids and they want to show that they they can they can live on their own they can show so they so that's why I spent two and a half years in foster care when I could have spent less but my parents yeah was in a situation yeah. where it was tough and uh fast forward two and a half years later out of foster care um we're still in this group this is like the early, early 90s mm-hmm. still in this group but we lived in multi, we lived in this like you know duplexes and we all lived next to each other different families mm-hmm. kind of and we and all the family came to Oregon from LA so our home base became Oregon Portland Oregon interesting and that's why I'm here to this day we wasn't supposed to be here but a tragic night kept me here and it kept my parents here um so in Portland Oregon and this is all over the news CNN um Oprah it was everywhere like this was huge it was a black cult too by a black leader and you you know and it was a lot of cults at this time but this was Mm -hmm. definitely from South Central LA so it was definitely a unique situation um, I remember in foster care looking at the news, you know, I remember, you know, like the anchor lady, like Tracy Berry, like that's the name yeah. of the local Portland, Oregon. If, if you're from Oregon, you know, and I remember as a kid, like them covering this case and I was one of the Ecclesia wow. kids, they used to call it. Wow. Um, yeah. So we, uh, we was in this group, even after foster care and I, we, um, and at this time, yeah, so my parents, they were, it wasn't a normal, typical home, like, I, mm-hmm. I didn't really have, like, oh, you know, like, yeah, it, it, they, they were devoted to the mission, and they, yeah. it, just a lot to explain there, but so yeah. eventually, my da- eventually, my dad got fed up, and the cult leader ended up passing, mm-hmm. and um, not too long after that, and my dad says, I'm, first, he was like, I'm taking my family, I'm taking my kids, I'm going back to L.A., and as he was getting ready doing that, the cult leader actually passed. Then after that, he stayed in Oregon and he got us and my mom and dad came back together because in this mm-hmm. cult, they, it was on and off and it was a lot of situation there. Yeah. But um, and uh, came to get us together and we got our own home. First time my parents got their own bank account. And then we were together and we were all my siblings, all my brother brothers and my sister and my mom and dad was under one home normal mm-hmm. and we was like oh this is normal what is this <laughs> what is this yeah you know and um that being said wow. is um my dad tried to like he was out of the group um the cult leaders did and my dad is like okay my parents both they wanted us to make sure we have a christian foundation mm-hmm. they was taught that the world is bad so they want to at least have some kind of christian foundation for their kids mm-hmm. even though they was told that organized religion which, you know, like a typical normal church that's not as cultish yeah. was the bad guys. Hmm. And um, so they end up going to a Baptist church that was Southern Baptist style, black church. Um, and we went there and my dad went there. My dad was just wholehearted, like he always do, sold out and um, just trying to serve the Lord, trying to serve and just be a, be a, a asset to the ministry because mm-hmm. that's how my dad is. And then he saw almost the same exact thing because he sat down with the pastor and the pastor 
did some shady stuff about finances and uh, of not paying him and not giving his words, kind of threw him under the bus. And after yeah. that, my dad was like, all right, we're done with church. We're done with any kind of religious organization. Wow. And I was at the age of nine years old or 10, I think, or yeah, I was like 10 or 11 at that time. Mm -hmm. And from, and ever since then, we didn't go to church from all the way from 11 up until the age of 21. Wow. So, yeah. What, what did you kind of, I guess, view your beliefs as during that time? Like what would you have identified as or, or felt of yourself or your I would have felt as time. a Christian at 11. Mm -hmm. Oh, as like a up, Christian. up until you got involved in church again. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was always a Christian. Okay. Um, okay. so even in this cult, they, they talked about Jesus and G like the typical fear-based evangelical, yeah. like Jesus took away our sins and he's, um, you got to be connected to him mm -hmm. if you can, so you can escape hell. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, Jesus is coming back. You never know, always be yeah. ready for the trumpets might sound. Mm -hmm. um, always this fear, always this intense, always like the world is bad. We as Christians are chosen. So it was this typical, like everybody else. That's mm -hmm. what, that's what blows my mind away is because a lot of cults and a lot of these toxic things will say they believe in the exact same Bible. They will quote the scriptures, but they use it in a different way to create yes. their own thing. So, yes. But yeah, I, I identify as a Christian, even though we wasn't going to church, whether I've been in middle school or I'll be in high school is partying, going to mm -hmm. a party and smoking a blunt in my hand and just somebody say, oh, God ain't real. I'll be like, hold on. No, Jesus is real. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't talk about my Jesus. Like he's for real. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? So I was that, that type of Christian where I didn't really go to church. So I didn't go to church all the way from 11 to 21. So I didn't grow, grow up in church, but my foundation was a a faith community that was very, it, it was a cult, extremely religious mm -hmm. and, um, and Christian based though, yeah. like, don't get it twisted. It still was a Christian, it was Christian based. It was just yep. this, you know, so all the way up to 21. So that's what I identified as. Sorry to give yeah. you a long answer. No, that's great. So you guys, the last time that you guys were in church was in 2018. So we talked a little bit about this with Becca mm -hmm. coming up on three years of not being in church for you not being in church during those 10 years and then you not being in church for these three years, what's the difference been between the two for you? Oh, oh the difference is like not being in church at, um, for 10 years at that time, I didn't, I had so much trauma that I didn't know I had. Um, I didn't really understand my story. I didn't understand who I was. I just kind of took life for what it, what it was. And, um, so I thought it was typical. I'm like, yeah, I have my faith. I have my belief, but you know, I had nothing really to, cause I didn't read the Bible. I only just heard it was more like oral communication of Christianity to me. And I took it. And uh, so, um, so it's hard to tell the difference between now. I mean, I know the difference between now I was young. I was ignorant. I did not know. I didn't understand. I didn't come to grips with my trauma, my story. And so, you know, but now after experience, like from 11, all the way up to 21, 2005, got involved into ministry, 14 years total in active ministry. And um, then that not being in church now, I feel like there's a freedom. I feel like there's ability to like identify who I am and 
like who I am, what am I? Yeah. And after all I've been through, after all that pain, after all that struggle, after all that, like not knowing of what, you know, being able to articulate this pain, this emotion. Um, now I, I know what that was. Now I can see my story. I can see my start. I can see my middle. I can see my, you know, in coming to my first half of my life. That's why I feel like, mm-hmm. I feel like, cool. My new life starts now because I'm able to like, know everything for 30 plus years. I was taught, you know, um, most of it was a lie mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I can actually find my truth. Yeah. So there's a difference between that. Yeah. So you, you were a creative while you were in church as well. Like you were working for the church as a creative or like serving the church as a creative. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, yeah, all of it. (laughs) Yeah, I was, yeah, I was all of that. And now I eventually became, I I eventually became like, man, a creative, you know, for the Mm -hmm. church. But yeah, right in 2005, when I first got in ministry, I was a youth leader and, um, I was 21 year, years old, an older youth leader. And mm-hmm. I was, I was, uh, I was always intrigued with video, you know? Um, and so I used to help make the video. I just gravitate towards it. I was like, cool. I'll try to mess around with this editing stuff. I yeah. used to, in seventh grade, I used to mess around with video. Like I didn't understand nobody. Everybody was doing everything else. I was messing around with little technical nerdy video stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, so I just gravitate towards that and yeah, as a youth leader. And I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was just helping out the ministry. I didn't understand. Oh yeah, I'm a creative. I didn't, I didn't understand yeah. who I was, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I started when I first started in church, I definitely gravitated towards the media side. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until years later where I got paid on staff, it wasn't until years later where I said, okay, um, the church wanted me to be a social media director. I wanted to use a creativity to you know, into film stuff, into video stuff. Mm-hmm. That wasn't until I was a little bit older into ministry, but yeah. So you've always, you've always gravitated towards the creative side. Yes. What was your experience like being a black creator in the spaces that you were at in church and in, in your churches? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as a black creative, um, like, first of all, I want to say this when it comes to just like in general of trying to identify who you are as a person, mm-hmm. like as a creative, like there's nobody to affirm you. That's who you are. Um, they see it, though. Leaders see it. Leaders see, oh, this this person's gifted. This person can go somewhere. But they only tell you in the confines of their ministry. Mm-hmm. So they don't, so you don't really see it. You just like, oh, I'll do this. Oh, yeah, I'm great yeah. at this. So, yeah. But you don't own it. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't take it because you, you know, you know what I mean? Especially I was conflicted with, um, I was conflicted with like doing good things and creative things for God was behind the pulpit and preaching. So I was limited. So the only way I could serve God is being a preacher. Cause every, everybody said, you, you, you definitely a pastor. They kept saying you a pastor, you're a preacher. And I didn't think you can do both. I was so religious and I was so like, so sold outness in the, and I kind of adapted to the culture where, I thought, hey, in order to be a minister and what it means to be a Christian is to be serious, don't play video games, you know, dress a certain way. And part of that was part of that was like really adapting to white culture. Um, and and so when it came to my creative ability being in that, um, like 
in church, your creativity is limited, period, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and that's what I'm saying. It's a creative. I didn't know that. It wasn't until 2015 when I looked outside the church and I realized that, oh, I am a creative genius. Mm -hmm. You know, it took me looking on Twitter and seeing one of my, you know, muse is this Kanye West, mm -hmm. seeing he had his own company called Donda. And I was like, what is that about? And it was a creative, creative agency yeah. that does graphic design and art. And I was a youth pastor at this time, burnt out, Beck and I, mm -hmm. and I took a vacation to the beach. And um, we, I said, babe, we got to go. I, we just, just see what we can do. Let's yeah. take the kids. Let's go to the beach. And I was sitting in the hotel and I was looking at Twitter. And I said, and I saw Kanye West. This is back in 2015. I was like, Donda. I said, oh, he named it after his mama, design creative company. Man, I can make money creating then yeah. I said, you know what? I want to honor my parents. And I named my company called Troy Lou. My mom, my mom name is Lula. My dad name is uh, Fernando, but they call them Troy. And I put them together and I said, Troy Lou, it sounds like a dope company. Actually, Becca said, hey, I had it Lou Troy. And she said, switch it around, make it Troy Lou. Yeah. I said, that does sound better. And, uh, and that's when I clicked. I said, you know what? I'm about to make money by creating but no pastor told me I can do that. No pastor seemed like they didn't want me to do that. It seemed like yeah. they wanted me, especially as a black man, they wanted me uh, to just create and almost be a slave for them. They was only interested in my gifts and talent as long as it serves them. But they didn't yeah. try to say, hey, you can make money outside of this. Hey, you can, you can, you can go create for other churches. No, they didn't. Mm -hmm. And I was young. I, so I was like, kind of like, you know, nobody told me that. That's what it was. And, I, and yeah. as a creative, I got taken advantage of. I remember a pastor asked, asking me because I, I wanted to create a, just a morning video on my iPhone. This is back and just like, I think, five years ago, seven years ago or something like that. I wanted to create it. And I created it real quick, whipped it up. He goes, how much it costs to make that? How much time did you spend on that? I said, this video like this would be like probably like $400 or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow. And he walked away because he was like, I, he was one of the penny pincher pastors who use mm -hmm. people, get deals and all that type of stuff. Yep. And he walked away happy because he says, cool, I saved this amount of money. Yep. Oh, the amount of money that churches save by not paying <laughs> their people mm -hmm. for their work. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, they robbing, they robbing folks. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially, I mean, especially now that you're not in the church in that capacity yeah. and you're doing your creative stuff on your own, like you start yeah. to see, oh, I was yeah. not being valued. It's beyond just like, oh, I wasn't doing enough. It's like, no, no, I was not being valued. I was being manipulated. I was being used because they know what they're doing, even if yeah. it isn't with mm -hmm. like a cruel heart. Mm -hmm. They know that they're saving money by convincing someone else to do yep. something for them. Yeah, they save a lot of money and they definitely yeah. know what they're doing. They know how much money they save. And yeah, yeah, I was getting paid. I remember then it, this that's one church and I went, we, we served at another church and uh yeah, I was getting paid $600 a month to be a teaching pastor, to be a multimedia director, social media manager. And at the time I was like, I was building my business at the time. So I didn't know what prices was right. Yeah. I was just desperate. Cool. You can put $600 on my rent that I don't have to pay. Cool. That's a little breather. But at the same time, I was getting burnt out, worn out. And I was like, no. And I, and, and, and being creative too, being robbed by the church helped mm -hmm. almost rob my own business too, because I didn't know what to charge in my business, you know, yeah. as I was doing it. Um, 
and it, not only I didn't know what to charge, but also felt felt I fell out of love with creativity mm-hmm. as a business. I was like, oh, I thought I was just gonna be cool. I'd be able to create and stuff like that. But doing this for the church, I don't know if I can do this. Then years later, doing it on my own, I realized, oh, the reason why I was burnt out, the reason why, because I wasn't getting paid. It wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's what it is. I can do all this as soon as I started getting paid. And my then years later, after the more I got out of church, the more mm-hmm. I deconstructed myself out of these beliefs, the more I became more betting on myself because I was taught to depend yeah. on the church to promote me. I was taught on a permit for the church and God to use me to go use man to rise me up to where he wants to take me. My business will flourish. But I heard pastors in meetings and, and saying like almost impassive, aggressive, subtly manipulative, telling me that you got to make a decision, you know, to be sold out for the church or, you know, you're doing your other stuff on the side. And I've been and for years, I was conflicted by that. I've been like, Oh man, just, and it made me pause some of my entrepreneur stuff on the side, but I'm like, y'all not paying me enough, but y'all want me to just devote everything over here. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I gotta get it paid. I'm raising kids. So I was definitely treated different in that way. I think they treat everybody like that way, but especially as a black male, looking back on it at the time, I didn't, you know, really uh, credited into that, but yeah, I was definitely being, being used and bamboozled and yeah, that, that yeah. sucked. But what's been something that you've deconstructed, like during this deconstruction process, what has helped you the most find your own creative voice and like find your creative identity again? Um, is I'm a self-expressive type of person. Like I wear my heart on my sleeves, really. I'm also an empath. So I care about what, like I can feel the people's vibration and, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And also care about what other people think too much. Um, growing up I'm not as bad but it still gets me and I second guess myself so um I think the more I deconstructed toxic theology and more and 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 was okay to love myself Mm. and it's okay to show myself like I was afraid to put my graph like if you see my page you're going to see my face all over my page Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done that back in the day because I was considered in the church prideful Mm. that would be considered vain that'd be considered uh, you trying to show off and trying to be an Absalom, yeah. trying to be prideful and, and arrogant. But really when it come down to, I was in white circles. So everything a black man does is prideful. Everything mm-hmm. a black man tries to express himself is too much, too loud. Trying mm-hmm. to, and, and when you come under that toxic theology of pride and deny self and vain and yes. don't be like Satan. So, so that's what hit me. And it really was ingrained into me. I mean, it wasn't just in church, it was in sports mm-hmm. as a surrounded by mostly white people. These coaches are white and they seeing me like do stuff like, like with gifted talent, they think I'm mm-hmm. showing off because I made it look easy. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to brag or nothing. I'm just saying like, they looking at, Oh, I'm yeah. So mm-hmm. it was like, you ain't got to do all that moving and dancing and diving and jumping. You just go and be like us, Luel. Be like yeah. us. That's what it, the message. Be like us. Don't be like your black culture. Be like yeah. us. Subconsciously, they did it, and and unconsciously, uh, and I saw that mm-hmm. in the church. But they used theology with it, which really worked for me. And um, so when it came to the creative, I, I don't know the question, but I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know the no, <laughs> I forgot. I, these are long questions, but great. I'm just saying it affected me big time, and I was yeah. like. So yeah, um, and I forgot the whole point I was going to wrap that up with. How did how did that help you find your voice by also acknowledging that? Um, yeah, it wasn't like 
in 2015 when I started my company. Then over time, uh, I was like, cool, I can, I can do this for the church as well. Then I got I realized that, man, this is not this is not cool. And then um, then when I start creating for myself and stop listening to leaders, when they see my stuff on Instagram, when they see my stuff on Facebook, they they feel threatened. Let's mm-hmm. just keep it real. Yeah. yeah. They like, oh, this person is very charismatic. He can speak. Mm-hmm. He can he knows how to create content on social media that's involving his faith. Mm-hmm. And they used to get those at like, okay, you know, a little bit, I can tell they was nervous. They was yeah. intimidated. They was afraid that people might gravitate towards me. I was Beck and I was not trying to take people. That's something we just so for real wasn't mm-hmm. trying to do. Hey, come over here and take snatch people. But people yeah. were afraid. Pastors were afraid of that. And um, so the more I went all in on my stuff and mm-hmm. said, for just F all y'all, um, it opened up the door for creativity. It opened up to unlimited, like, no, I'm gonna express myself in this way. No, I'm gonna mm-hmm. put myself out there. No, I'm gonna do this. So, and I'm gonna be loud as I can and I'm gonna do what I want. Um, yeah. And yeah. the more I got in tune with myself, the more I realized self is not bad. It's not toxic. It's not evil to love yourself and be about yourself. When you know yeah. yourself is, I feel like I'm a health. I love people. I don't feel like I'm better than anybody. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. the thing people would, you know, so my creative expression was very who I am, meaning I'm loud. I'm charismatic. I say what the hell I want to say at mm-hmm. times. I might delete it later because it was a little too much. Um, and <laughs> you know what I mean? We've all been there. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> We've all done <laughs> So, yeah. And so the more I deconstructed, the more I became free, the more, more I came me. I think my creativity just went through the roof. Yeah. And uh, so, and I love it. Yeah. I mean, my gosh. So yeah, let's talk about what you're doing with it. Mm-hmm. I know that's like, we, we weren't really going to talk on it, but yeah, it's, it's been so cool to learn from you, to learn from everyone in the space, but to learn yeah. from you, especially as a creative in the space and the way that you communicate your thoughts and your ideas is just very, I see why, why pastors would have been scared of other people following you guys, you know, like, you I see both, it now too though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No lie. You both just bring people in very well by being yourselves and mm-hmm. by having the hard conversations that a lot of other people don't want to have, because if they do, it means getting uncomfortable mm-hmm. and people don't want to be uncomfortable for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so learning from you both in that, but especially just seeing the way that you're creating so much so quickly and just with such passion and intention is really, mm-hmm. really beautiful. So you're doing two different podcasts right now one with becca mm-hmm. and then one with you said your brother no we don't do that one no more that's more oh, okay, of an archive okay. but oh, i am okay. gonna do and i am gonna do and i was like am i doing because I, I do have the reason why i thought you said that because i do yeah. have another one planned yes okay so we get even more <laughs> creative stuff coming yeah and you're working on getting some merch out i mean it feels like mm-hmm as obviously I don't know you personally outside of Instagram, but like Mm -hmm. from as long as I've known you, it seems like the more that you come into yourself in the space that you're creating for yourself, you're just going and Mm. you're creating spaces for other people to exist in. Mm. And that's like, so special. I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And you know what? I am going, I feel like 
I'm free. Like, that's more of your question of like, man, how did deconstruction play in your creativity? And, and, and I feel like I'm okay to be me. I know I'm not prideful. I know I don't feel like I'm better than anybody else. I love people. Like I literally Mm -hmm. like love every, like I see me in everybody and Becca the same way. And that's what made her so beautiful and so attractive is her love for people. Like Mm -hmm. I saw it through the religious facade that we were taught, you know, and how we pastoral, we walk, you know, Mm-hmm. we genuine love and care for anybody not people who look a certain way or dress a certain way I saw her beautiful as all get up and it's not too many beautiful women who like beautiful people looking mm-hmm. that are beautiful on the inside you know because they take on the identity of the outside yeah um but um uh and that's what was attractive so and dang it, I forgot my whole little, what I was going through like what I was you got some to, freedom was, in here yeah so yeah there we go I got some so um, we have the freedom to be ourselves and, and then we got to, de- de- I got to deconstruct like, no, I, I'm gonna put me out there because I trust mm-hmm. me. I love me. I know me. Mm-hmm. I know my intentions. I know my heart. So whoever takes me wrong, you know, take me wrong. I'm not doing it for you. Yeah. You can move on. You can you go ahead. Um, and that's, it took me a while to get there, but yeah, I'm going because, um, I now know I have clarity on like, okay, this is my purpose right here. It's clarity. This is not so much my purpose, but this is where I can exercise my love for people. This is where I can exercise by helping humans. This is where I can have the message of rehumanization. This is the area. This is what it was. This is what it's always been. You know, I feel like God was working me up to this point. You know what I mean? Or the universe working me up to this point. My destiny, my purpose was working me up to this point. Mm-hmm. and to really touch people in a way of like you know what I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be creative first I want to hold back the creativity like oh it's too graphic heavy it's too it's looking too polished I want to be organic and I'm like no I'm gonna do what I feel I'm a yeah. I believe I'm a creative graphic designer self-taught and I believe like colors I believe graphics I believe design everything has mm-hmm. a way of communicating and I, I believe in that philosophy like you know color communicates aesthetics communicate and everything mm-hmm. about like I choose from the font and everything is communication. Yeah. And I, what I want to communicate is care. What I want to communicate is healing, empowerment, love, and positivity and rehumanization. So that's what I'm trying to communicate through my creativity. And I feel free. And I, the fact that you noticed that, because I have grown in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. And first I was going to hide my identity. Then I said, no, I'm tired. If I hide myself, and this is not the case for everybody else, so don't feel pressure. But when I hide myself, I'm letting my oppressors win. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, the reason why I'm hiding myself is because of fear. And I'm choosing no longer to move and be motivated and to go with a motive of fear. And I I always check that at the door. And I was like, no, I love, I love myself. I love others. And I love my creativity. I'm going to put out there love. So no, let me go out there and let me, let me just, let me just move. So yeah, yeah, I'm going and it sounds, it's, I've been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it looks like, oh man, you know, I've been doing this for years. It haven't got really acknowledged. It got used. Uh, I got underpaid, but then my business, as I started doing a business and I got my prices right, um, I gained confidence and, uh, but now I realize my value. So I've been doing this for years when it comes to techno media setup mm-hmm. and everything like that. And I said, man, I have been gifted with all this ability to help people. I've been gifted to give, I have a slogan called be your platform. Mm-hmm. And you know, cause the reason why I was saying that because people, the church always say, be careful with the prideful heart, 
be careful for your ambition. Everybody's yeah. looking for a platform and all this stuff. You have this person looking for a platform and that's being told to me. Uh, I've been the most serving, like, man, like whatever you want to do, submissive. I was born in a cult. So my, my ruts in my brain know how to take orders and know yeah. how to submit real quick. Okay. Um, so I was very, uh, you know, accommodating type of person, very mm -hmm. people pleaser heavy, but very boisterous at times. Um, but not really all the time, like who I was. And so I like, and I was like, dang, so I was afraid to have my own platform because that's of the devil. I was afraid. Mm -hmm. So I was taught to wait for people to give me the right connections, the right promotion and the right, uh, platform. Yeah. Then it, as I deconstructed, I realized like, no, be your platform. Yeah. No, you, you don't pursue, you create, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. don't, you don't pursue and create, even when it comes to, and I, I might go off topic with this racism in a deconstruction area and how mm -hmm. all this type of stuff, I believe there's a balance between, Hey, uh, voice, voicing the concerns and see the disparities of, um, white creators versus people of color creators and, yeah, I don't like that as frustrate me, but I'm a, I got a, another slogan called be that solution. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in being that solution, meaning if I'm, if I'm frustrated by a system, I'm going to create a new system. Mm. You know, I'm yeah. going to be my platform. If I don't, if nobody going to invite me to a conference, invite me to a speak, I'm going to set up shop, make my garage mm -hmm. and make it a place where I'm going to film myself and I'm going to speak, you yeah. know, because I've been for years, I, I can speak, I can preach, I can in the church and everything mm -hmm. but a lot of pastors were intimidated by that gift and that talent and they held me back mm -hmm. i spent seven years not having one sermon but i got full notes of sermons and prepping and teaching but i've been taught you know but i've wow. been held back waiting on god to promote me and so be your platform is like no i'm coming here with my creative ability my creative talent and i'm using everything i got to help humans and to give other people a, other people a voice to be their platform yeah you know so yeah I'm sorry I went off a little bit um, oh do not apologize that was a great little tangent <laughs> mm -hmm. well and I think you touched on a good point too if you're waiting for someone to invite you're going to be waiting you yeah know, you're just going to keep waiting and unfortunately mm -hmm. we keep seeing that across spaces and I'm speaking as a white woman on this so I don't want to say like I understand and recognize my privilege as a white woman in this space but like the invitations we are still seeing will mm -hmm. be held by the white people with yes. the loudest voices. Y yes. And if we keep telling black creators, brown creators, Asian creators, if we tell these yeah. marginalized voices, hey, just wait, just wait until someone else invites you in. Hey, just mm -hmm. wait until you see a spot and then you can come in. Mm -hmm. We have historically seen everyone is going to keep waiting. Yep. So hell yeah, make the spaces, mm -hmm. create that space. Mm -hmm. It's very important. And, you know, I remember I was like, man, what is my voice? Mm -hmm. And um, when I was my company, Troy Lou, because I used to interview people all the time um, and I gave them a platform and stuff like that. I hosted an event. I let somebody be a guest speaker. I always mm -hmm. gave people a platform. See, I can speak and I can hold the mic and have charisma, but people think people are like that, don't want to share it. I can share the stage and I love, yeah. I love seeing other people coming to themselves. Like I always been that person and I yeah. Becca too as well. And so, um, I, I, like, so I, I said, man, I hate, I always put, I told Becca this one time I was crying and I said, 
this is a couple years back, years back. And I was like, I was thinking about church ministry. I said, man, I give other people voices. I do events and I let them speak. I interview them and I let them talk about their brand and their company. Mm-hmm. When we did a, a youth group, we allowed uh, the young people to start using their gifts. We wanted to see them use their gifts. Mm-hmm. I said, but nobody doing that for me. Mm-hmm. And I was, it really was painful. I was like, nobody in this space is trying to, hey, man, we see you gifted. We see y'all talented. They mm-hmm. always praised our talent only if it works for them. Only if it, so it really, it really hurt us. I was like, dang. So we didn't know how to do nothing on our own because we Mm -hmm. thought doing your own thing was being selfish. You need a covering. You need some pastor to vouch for you. So, and Becca goes and say, you know what? The biggest voice Oprah had was giving other people a voice. And I was Mm -hmm. like, whoa. And I said, that's who I am. Yeah. And I said, man, you know, so I'm going to say, I say, you know what? My voice now is to give other people a voice. And I said, okay, um, though I have a big voice myself, I'm going to speak myself. I also believe at the same token, somebody else needs to speak and tell their story. And I'm always pushing people start a podcast, do something, mm-hmm. do be your platform. Do I'm, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for people using their voice, telling their story mm-hmm. in the way, in their own context. It don't have to be video. It don't have to be audio. Yeah. It can be text. It can be all kinds of ways, but use your voice. So I'm creating a space yeah. and for, for everybody. I want to be able to help people even in this space on the creative side whatever yeah. you know so well in your platform I mean you re like transitioning and doing the rehumanizing mm-hmm. you're absolutely yeah. doing it yeah. it's amazing to see and be a part of <laughs> you said the the, the transition of rehum yeah. yeah yeah whenever you mm-hmm. kind of I mean even the merch that you're starting to do just like the yeah yeah it's see amazing. the merch um, we, I'm just, I'm not calling it merch right now. This is just, yeah. I call it, this is just apparel. So we getting this go. apparel yes. ready. The reason there, I'm, you know, me with the words and all yeah. that type of stuff, because, uh, no, it's apparel, but the thing is I'm doing with the apparel. I'm not getting ready to, um, necessarily like, Oh, here, buy merch or mm-hmm. buy apparel. Um, this is apparel. I, I wanted to see what's the best design, mm-hmm. what communicates to the people. Um, and rehumanizes the message. It's always been the message since mm-hmm. I kind of got out of church. Um, I think 2018, when I started looking at the word rehumanization, I was like, "Dang, we all products of dehumanization." Mm-hmm. The word deconstruction is, you know, if you're deconstructing, it's really are you rehumanizing? Because we all doing the same thing. So, um, in, in the apparel, I want that to be on the shirt. I believe in wearing your message. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, we're gonna use this as apparel. But we use this apparel called Care Packs. And we got a plan for the, these apparels. We're gonna give. We want to give give these things away to That's you know awesome. specifically to our community people in the spaces. So we got mm-hmm. some planned giveaways. So we don't. We we're not mentioning the word sell yes. or shop right now. We're, we're yeah. the key is we believe generosity paves the way. I mean you know for prosperity. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe trying to create a care culture. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of buy first, I don't, I don't, it's nothing wrong with sell merch. We go sell merch. We go yeah. do all that. But right now we're in a phase of adding, just add so much value as possible. Show that we care by, by, by demonstrating that and giving away with generosity and really blessing and touching people. And, uh, I want to see what happens with this because it's going to stick out like a sore thumb because, it's going to be beautiful because I know exactly what, where we're going and what we're trying to do when it comes to. So that's why getting the merch ready, people see, people think I'm getting the merch ready, ready to 
you know, yeah. sell it, but um, they're going to be surprised when they get packages in their, in the mail and they're going to see just affirmation and beautiful stuff coming from help yeah. humans. So um, that's incredible. Yeah. So for you, what advice do you have for someone who is maybe looking to find their voice again after they've been using it in for others? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's real good. After been using it for others. Yeah. Um, and I noticed this one thing, I noticed that being conditioned and using our gifts, our talents and our lives and our ability for other people, other ideas and other ministries or group of communities, mm-hmm. we're conditioned to know how to turn it on and know how to use that energy for others. But when it comes to ourselves, we're not motivated. We struggle yeah. when it comes to starting our own business, when it comes to starting our own ministry, when it comes to starting our own cause, um, when it comes to starting our own brand, when it comes to just using our voice, it's hard to go all in like we mm-hmm. did. And, and what I want to say is that it's a sign of lack of belief in self. And I think the rehumanization part is the part of like choosing yourself, mm. choosing yourself in a way of like, hold on, like whatever I am to do, whether it be singing, whether it be dancing, whether it be art, whether it be writing, do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Write for yourself, Uh, do art for yourself. Whatever pain you're going through, however you channel it, whether it be walking, whatever, working out, do for yourself. And when you do for yourself, I believe that it rehumanized that like, okay, is that reconnection to self. And when you reconnect it to yourself, the more you get connected, the more you like, you have, you can work for yourself. You can, you can use your voice for yourself. You can, you can do this for yourself, but it's to fall in love with yourself because in these communities, we're taught not to, we taught to deny ourselves and to fall in love with somebody else. And that's usually a mission or a ministry. So yeah. Fall in love with yourself. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. That's great. Gosh, Luell, this was phenomenal if that's a word phenomenal (laughs) (laughs) and I know that we're going to be doing more I'm sure yes yes this was so great thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and giving that great advice and just being such a light in a very confusing space for a lot of people you're definitely Mm -hmm. helping myself included you're helping a lot of us I appreciate that yeah appreciate that Thank you so much again for being a part of the Divine Misfits podcast. Follow us on Instagram at the Divine Misfits for updates on the podcast and to keep in touch. If you're interested in sharing your story with us, check out the link in our bio. Can't wait to hear from you.